This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on this Saturday afternoon. A chilly one indeed, but lovely and sunny at the moment. Anyway, I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few moments, we'll introduce you to our panel of firefighters, a doctor, and a safety expert, all with us today to talk about fire safety and carbon monoxide in our homes. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're watching this week. And Mazda is recalling 2016 through 2019 MX-5 or Miata sports cars with automatic transmissions because an electrical problem could cause the cars to suddenly lose power and potentially result in a crash. Now, more than 14,000 Miatas are affected. Mazda said it's not aware of any crashes or injuries related to the issue. A software problem in the transmission can cause an unexpected downshift, which obviously will cause the vehicle to slow rather abruptly. Dealers will update the transmission software in affected vehicles at no charge to owners. And Mazda people say owners will be notified of affected vehicles will be notified by the end of March. Not a great news week for WestJet this week. WestJet Airlines saw surging jet fuel prices dent its profits in the fourth quarter, with net earnings falling 39% year over year. Passenger revenue grew 7% the last quarter compared to the same period a year earlier, but fuel costs were up over 21%, canceling out most of those gains. Oil and jet fuel prices were up to four-year highs in October. They did fall a little towards the end of the year, but uh, WestJet earned 29.2 million in the fourth quarter. That's down from 47 million in the same period a year earlier. Volatile fuel prices and exchange rates. Yes, the loonies not exactly having an epic year either, and that has contributed to downward pressure on margins for WestJet and for Air Canada too, says uh, Kevin Chang, who's an industry analyst from CIBC this week. And the final number from WestJet, revenue total 4.73 billion for 2018, up a touch from the previous year. Twitter turned its first profit in 2018. But the company has a problem it doesn't want to talk about. They said last Thursday it had 321 million monthly active users in the final three months of last year, down 5 million from the prior quarter and 9 million from the same period a year ago. And that marked the third consecutive quarter of user declines. And soon, the company's actually going to stop disclosing the number entirely. In its earnings report, Twitter said it plans to stop disclosing the monthly active user number after the first quarter of this year in favor of a newly introduced figure on monetizable daily active users. No matter how many we've got, we can sell those names. Twitter says it's suggesting modest growth in engagement on the platform. Shares of Twitter fell about 8% on Thursday following that earnings report. Twitter says the declining monthly active user service is because of a mix of factors, including efforts to improve the health of the service, as well as changes made to comply with data see privacy protections in Europe. They're way ahead of us on that score. Oh, and in In case you haven't heard, this is important. The government of Canada is warning Canadians to avoid 
all travel to Venezuela due to the country's significant level of violent crime. Global Affairs Canada notes the unstable political and economic situations have led to a decline in the country's basic living conditions, including, quote, shortages of medication, food staples, gasoline, and water. And they go on to note that violence against locals and visitors alike can occur in both urban and rural areas, including in those popular with tourists. The department only issues an avoid-all-travel advisory when it determines that there is, quote, an extreme risk to your personal safety and security. So, as a result, it underscores that you should not travel to Venezuela or the region if you are already in the country, territory, or region. You should consider leaving as soon as it is safe to do so. Lots more on the very good Government of Canada travel website. Those are some more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll check out even more later in the hour. But coming right up, we will open up our phone lines for our next couple of segments, too, for your calls on home safety to our panel of firefighters, doctors, and safety experts. And we will talk to a carbon monoxide survivor as well. It's all coming up after this quick break. It's Vancouver Consumer on 980 CKNW. Sunshine and cool temperatures, a beautiful Saturday afternoon on the west coast of Canada, provided you're wearing the right duds. I'm Sterling Fox, it's Vancouver Consumer, with a panel of guests to introduce you to. In studio with me from the Burnaby Fire Department is Captain Rob Horgan. Hi, Rob. Good afternoon. It's good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Also joining us from Kidda, Canada, is Sharon Cooksey. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. It's It's great to be here. It's nice to have you with us. You're the safety expert that we're going to talk to and include in our conversation going forward. Also joining us on the phone, we have a couple of guests on the phone. The uh, Surrey Fire Chief, Len Garris, is on the line right now. Chief Garris, welcome, sir. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Uh, You, uh, I've already been told, are quite the repository of information with respect to carbon monoxide, Chief Garris, so we're going to rely on your expertise a lot. Also joining the panel from Victoria this afternoon is emergency physician Dr. Bruce Campegna, who also practices here in Vancouver at uh, VGH and is on the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Dr. Campegna, Bruce, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and uh, Bruce, I'm going to come to you after we hear from our, our, our final member of the panel, who is joining us from the Okanagan, uh, Vernon, this afternoon, or Kelowna, that area, she is Lori McIntosh, and Lori has a story to tell. Lori, hi. Good afternoon. Welcome to Vancouver Consumer. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You have been through a carbon monoxide experience in your life quite recently within the last couple of months, Lori. Tell us your story, and then we'll get Dr. Campania to, t- to tell us exactly what happened to you. Oh, okay. Uh, November 5th, my husband and I were just settling down for the evening to watch some TV, and, and uh, we heard a beep, and automatically our thought went to, oh, the battery's going in the detector. But then it started to talk and tell us carbon monoxide. So uh, we went and put the dogs outside. We called 911. Right. They said, go outside, wait for the fire department. So that's what we did. Um, once they showed up, they came into the house and I don't think they were even in the house for two minutes and they came outside and got their Scott packs on and went back in and said, yes, you know, there's, there's a high level of, of carbon monoxide in the house. Laurie, just, just a quick technical question. How long between the time the alarm started to beep and the time it started to give you instructions, how much time elapsed between the beeps and the chat? Seconds. Oh, really? 
mere seconds. It, 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 it's a wonderful detector. It, it, it expires this past year. It's a 10-year-old Akita uh, detector. And uh, we were just very grateful that it worked. But it was mere seconds for it to, to beep and for her to start talking. And it began it. giving you instructions. So the, the fire department shows up and they, they immediately uh, put on the masks and all the rest of it because uh, they need, uh, they recognize carbon monoxide. Now, were you okay? Were you and your husband okay? Or did you require treatment on the scene? We, well, they couldn't treat us on scene. I, I was headachy and my husband had been quite drowsy. So they called the uh, ambulance and the paramedics came and took us straight down to the hospital to have us checked out. So we were there for a couple of hours. They put us on oxygen right away to help clear our system out. They took the blood test and, and it showed that we did have uh, carbon monoxide in, in our bloodstream. And you're okay? We're good. Good. Very good now. Scary stuff, though, huh? It was extremely scary, but not actually until the next day when it kind of struck me that, gee, you know, we could have died. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there's nothing to tell you aside from the detector. Yeah. That that something's going on so we're very grateful and very thankful so literally you you, two lives in Kelowna saved by a carbon monoxide detector that went off and did exactly what you bought it for what it was supposed to do yeah excellent now Dr. Campania tell us Bruce if you would please sir what happened to Lori and her husband they she said she got headache headachey and her husband got kind of dozy and drowsy I, I assume these are preliminary symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning tell us what happens beyond that so uh, my apologies sterling bruce campana here can you hear me yes i can sir yes i did yeah. i can I, I was cut off there so i'm not sure is that uh, question directed to me yes it was i was simply wondering uh, because you heard laurie's story and how lucky yes. she was to, re- to receive the fire department and and get evacuated quickly but had she not and of course she realized the next day as she told us geez I, we could have died so how does that happen well, she's absolutely right. So, um, how does it happen? Carbon monoxide, uh, and and stop me if I'm getting into uh, area that's already been trodden over. But uh, carbon monoxide, colorless, odorless, uh, you can't sense it. Everybody thinks, oh, you can see car exhaust, yeah. so, and you can smell car exhaust. So, carbon monoxide can't. I think we've just lost our connection with Dr. Campania. Uh, Chief Garris, can you pick that up? Can you pick up on what the doctor was talking about? You've, you've got 40 years under your belt, and you're kind of legendary for your knowledge of this subject. Uh, the individual uh, uh, said that she got, uh, Lori said she got a little dizzy, and her husband started to get a little drowsy. And what happens after that if the alarm doesn't go off and the fire department doesn't show up? How long before the the drowsiness and those initial impacts symptoms, uh, Chief Garris, and well, the fatal results? Well, uh, I, would, I would say depending on, uh, every individual is going to have a, a different uh, propensity depending on uh, the shapes that they're in, but I would say probably within the next uh, five to ten minutes, they're probably going to slip into unconsciousness and then uh, eventually expire from, uh, from the concentration. So it's, it's, not a good, it's not a good story for individuals that uh, have been uh, poisoned by uh, carbon monoxide. So it, it, could have, it could have happened that quickly, it, it, say in less than half an hour. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
So, Sterling, um, the other thing I wanted to mention to you, if I have this opportunity, sure. is uh, uh, the University of the Fraser Valley, in conjunction with the BC Injury Prevention Unit, uh, we published a study in, in October of 2017, and I just wanted to bring to your attention that you know, more than 300 Canadians are dying each year from carbon monoxide poisoning, and nearly 200 are hospitalized in Canada. Mm. And this... this um, on average, we're seeing about 11 deaths in British Columbia and about 36 hospitalizations. Now, that, of course, it spikes up and down. So it's, I just wanted to make that point because it's a real concern. It's, it's a real issue that we need to pay attention to. And right. So uh, it, it's, it's an opportunity for if somebody's replacing a smoke alarm, a combination smoke alarm, uh, adding that to your home is, is a really inexpensive piece of insurance. Exactly. Uh, Sharon Cooksey, uh, talk to us yes. a little bit. Let's just pick up on the chief's remarks about inexpensive uh, safety devices. Typically, how much would it cost uh, for a carbon monoxide alarm in a typical home? Well, we have a variety of options, right? Of from basic model to best model, but somewhere between thirty to fifty dollars an alarm. We recommend one, at least one, on every floor of the home one outside sleeping area. So in your typical home, right, you have... Including the basement? Um, y- yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Because here's the thing a lot of consumers don't realize is that CO doesn't travel the way smoke does. It doesn't just rise. It dissipates or it disperses throughout the home in unpredictable manners. So um, you could have a leak from a boiler in the basement Mm -hmm. and the CO could find its way to the third floor. It could skip bypass the first and the second floors. But So there's really no predictable patterns for it. That's why placement is critical. And it's not going to hurt to have more than we recommend, right? Well, sure, exactly. So the more alarms, the better. And I think Lori's case is a prime example of uh, how important it is to have alarms in the home. So, you know, if Lori hadn't had... Uh, an, she told us, uh, right? my God, I could have died. She really could have. And the thing is, she didn't sense it, right. right? It just came on. And I hope Lori's still on. I would ask her... Hi, how, hi Lori. I, hi, hi, Lori. I would ask ask her, um, hey, Lori, how long did did you sense your headache before the alarm went off? I had been headachey all day. Mm. So, see, there's a, a, and a lot of people also don't realize, and Rob might be able to answer this, that there's a a weighted time, weighted average over time. So, there's a certain um, moderate or protected exposure to carbon monoxide because carbon monoxide is ambient in the air around us all the time. It's just when it builds up to certain parts per million over certain amounts of time that it becomes unhealthy. Right. And so that's what the alarms do. So so Lori was starting probably to sense her sense carbon monoxide build up in the home because she I think Lori you had a very unusual case, right, with your your carbon monoxide leak. Yeah. Yeah. Ours was from, uh, they figured, Forty BC came in to check. They checked the, the fireplaces. Everything was fine. They checked the furnace. Everything was fine with the furnace. But what they think had happened is that we'd had high winds that day. And with the B vent where the, the hot water tank and the, and the furnace uh, go up, yeah. um, they figured because our home is 20-some-odd years old, it had one of the old caps on the vent. And they think what happened is that the, with the wind, it had pushed everything back down and vapor locked, 
causing everything to disperse into the house again. Interesting stuff. Captain Horrigan is 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 nodding affirmatively as you describe exactly yeah. that. Looking at Sharon, Rob, you've attended uh, situations where carbon monoxide poisoning has uh, occurred. Uh, and tell us about your experiences, and then we'll go back to the doctor and talk about this hyperbaric chamber aspect to it all as well. Yeah, we've. Uh We've responded to several. As part of the HAZMAT team, we respond to carbon monoxide alarms when the the level gets too high. And I just wanted to quickly ask you, Lori, do you remember what the level was reading on your detector? Uh, I believe it. I believe it was one hundred and twenty. Okay. And that, that's uh, that's a high number. The, the, that, the, well, that's what the the fire department got on theirs. That's what they. That's what the fire department saw on theirs. That's what they're reading. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that falls within the yeah, first 70 to 120-ish, I think, the first yeah. level. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll evacuate the building at, uh, uh, or we'll advise at 9 to 10 parts per million. We'll advise. <laughs> at 35 oh. parts per million, we will evacuate the building. Mm. Um, and we will, you won't be allowed to go back in until those levels drop. Fortis will be called in and we'll have you check they'll check everything and uh so we'll do a, a thorough sweep of the house and we'll check with our meters and then fortis will come with us typically do the fire guys find the source of the leak or do the do, do the gas people uh, eventually do a forensic uh, audit of the house and find it do you guys usually find out where it's a coming? lot of times we do find it yeah. yes mm-hmm. yeah it, it's um it's not difficult to find it because we know where we're going to to look for it right uh, as, as sharon mentioned uh your heater your water heater, um, any uh, fuel-fired appliance in your home yep. will give off carbon monoxide if it's not serviced properly or serviced regularly. Right. And a fireplace, any wood burning, a barbecue, yes. a hibachi grill. And we were talking yes. about, just on the news, we were talking about there's 47,000 people, a lot of them on the island, without power right now. And Sharon looked at me and said, you know, some of those people are going to be running generators improperly. Yes. Meaning what? Where, where, what are they doing wrong? Absolutely. So generators are never, and I'm going to say this twice, never to be run indoors because running one generator indoors can reach the equivalent of 100 idling cars in the same space as far as CO production. Wow. So if you run a generator indoors, it's like you have a parking lot in your house. Holy smokes. So do not do it. All right. Absolutely. And, and good advice, people listening to us right now on the, on the portable radios with the batteries, because that's the only thing that works in the house. <laughs> that's right. So get that generator outside. Move it outside. Right now. We'll take a quick break here. Our guest, Surrey Fire Chief Len Garris from the Burnaby Fire Department, Captain Rob Horrigan, safety expert Sharon Cooksey from Kidda, Canada. Bruce Campania is an emergency physician in Victoria this afternoon. And Laurie McIntosh in the Okanagan, an actual carbon monoxide survivor. Lots more on this very important topic after the news. And welcome back to the program. A distinguished panel assembled this afternoon in the Saturday cool sunshine to talk about a very important subject. We're talking about carbon monoxide and fire safety as well in your home. And our panel includes the chief of the fire department, city of Surrey, Len Garris, is with us. Captain Rob Horrigan from the Burnaby Fire Department. Safety expert Sharon Cooksey with Kidda Canada. Emergency physician Dr. Bruce Campania is with us in Victoria this afternoon. And from the Okanagan, we're joined by Lori McIntyre 
Mackintosh, who is herself a survivor of a carbon monoxide poisoning event a short while ago. Dr. Campania, to you to begin this segment, and we're going to ask the chief about our our responsibilities and the laws surrounding carbon monoxide. But first, Dr. Campania, there were 13 office workers in Vancouver in uh, December who were uh, in, in some way exposed to carbon monoxide, and you were one of the physicians who treated that group of people. Tell us about that experience, please. Well, that was a, uh, that was a busy week. We had, uh, in a seven-day period, 22 people that were referred to us at the hyperbaric unit at Vancouver General Hospital, which is unusual. It is. Um, yeah, and the 13 in the office building... Uh, of the 13, um, all came to emergency. Only one required uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, the rest were distributed throughout different hospitals and all got kind of the baseline therapy that we recommend, which is up to three hours of 100% oxygen by mask. Right. Which is started by first responders, started by fire, continued by paramedics, and then continued in the emergency department. As exactly, exactly as Lori described her situation to us a couple of months ago, as you described it, almost word for word, Doctor Campania. Carry on, please. And I want to ask you about the hyperbaric chamber. I'm a diver, you see, Doc, and I yep. know about hyperbaric chambers from the bends. If you come up too fast, you end up in a hyperbaric chamber, and you're in a lot of trouble until eventually things iron out or smooth out. So, how does the hyperbaric chamber affect a person poisoned by carbon monoxide? Well, that's a good question, Sterling, and I'm going to answer with, I'm going to start with the honesty, which is, I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which shouldn't alarm anybody. Nobody knows. So the the question is, does hyperbaric oxygen help somebody who's had a carbon monoxide exposure? And the answer is, we don't know. Hmm. We, We used to know, or thought we knew, we were very sure. And there has been a variety of conflicting evidence and conflicting studies. So now we can confidently say we don't know. The standard of care is somebody who's had a significant exposure. And by significant, we mean loss of consciousness, seizure, persisting neurologic deficit, for example. They can't walk straight or they can't speak properly. Or somebody who has had evidence of a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Those are people that we would say, you know what, we should probably put you in the chamber. I don't know if it's going to help you. It's a standard of care, and we have exactly 24 hours to treat you. And if we don't treat you in those 24 hours, and there is permanent damage, we've lost our window of opportunity here. Mm. And so we're kind of flying blind. We think that it may help some people sometimes. And if it was me, if you want to know if you want to know if a doctor is telling the truth, you ask them, what would you do if this was a family member? I guess you should make sure, first of all, that they like their family. But if they like their family, ask them what they would do if it was a family member. Good point. And most doctors would say, you know what? I'd go in the chamber. The downside of going in the chamber is that you have a lousy time for three hours. Not bad. And, and in fact, we do three treatments. So it eats up a whole day. There's not really a downside other than that. The downside of not going in, if it turns out that hyperbaric makes a difference, the downside is if you don't go in, you've lost your window of opportunity. So that, uh, and I'm going to, and 
tell me, Sterling, am I getting out of turn here? No, not at all. Down the road, there is evidence that people get what are called delayed neurologic sequelae. There are things that happen after carbon monoxide exposure, not to everybody, that are devastating. So you, you come in, you, you have an exposure, maybe you get oxygen but don't get hyperbaric, uh, or maybe you don't get oxygen at all, and you go home, your headache's gone, your nausea's gone, your dizziness is gone, your, your exhaust system is fixed, and you're fine. And three months later, it's weird. You're Uh having arguments with your spouse, and you're having trouble working out the taxes. So there's a whole delayed thing going on then. There is, and it involves cognitive, it involves emotional, it involves personality changes. Wow. That people get divorced, they lose their jobs, they may become suicidal, substance abuse. And it's it's devastating, uh, partly just the nature of the disorder, also because at that point there is no treatment wow interesting stuff and and uh, graphically presented dr campania and i thank you for your patience in doing that i'd like to ask uh, surrey fire chief lynn garris a couple of questions because uh, we have of course you know building codes and standards are always being updated chief garris what uh, in terms of the individual tenant or homeowner in british columbia what is the law, Chief Garris? What are our responsibilities with respect to protecting ourselves in our homes, if at all? Well, that's a, that's a good question. In British Columbia, our building code right now requires all new construction uh, for uh, CO, combination CO, smoke uh, detection uh, installed in, in all homes. However, that uh, stock that we have of, of pre-construction retrospectively, uh, the only laws that we have that affect those is uh, through the uh, BC Fire Code and the Fire Services Act that require mandatory um, uh, smoke detection, but it doesn't it doesn't include CO. I can tell you that the Fire Chiefs of British Columbia in 2016 uh, passed a resolution encouraging the government of British Columbia to look at this and adopt this retrospectively. If I had my way in British Columbia, the only type of device that you would be able to buy on the shelves would be a combination smoke and seal alarm. And I, I think that would go a long ways to solve the problem. But, but I also need to tell the, the general public, you know, that 45, only 45% of the fires that we go to in British Columbia actually have a working smoke alarm. So we've got a long ways to go on smoke detection and a long ways to go on CO detection. Well, it, Chief, in- Chief Garris, if we only have 45% of homes with a smoke detector, I hate to ask you this question because I know it's going to be a scary low number, but what percentage of British Columbians have a carbon monoxide detector in our homes? We, we, we don't know the answer to that because we're not recording that in our data, and that's something else that we could probably improve on in terms of uh, the Office of the Fire Commissioner could actually start collecting that information. Right. Uh, we could we could be better informed on how we can protect British Columbians. Would you be willing to venture a guest, uh, guess rather, Chief uh, Garris, about what percentage? Because uh, I'm figuring just ballparking, would you say even 10, 15 percent, or is that even a high number? 
I think that would be a high number. Wow. I think it would be probably around 10%. My goodness. Now, Sharon Cooksey is sitting here nodding in agreement with all of your remarks, Chief. And, and uh, Sharon, I have a question for you because I have a carbon monoxide detector in our home. It was, uh, it was introduced uh, over a year ago. It's one of those deals that plugs into the wall. It's mm-hmm. got a little red thing on it. And it reads zero. Yes. Uh, does that have a battery in it, too? And if so, how often do I have to change it? Depends on the model that you have. What we recommend uh, on the market now are plug-in units with a t- built-in, sealed-in, 10-year battery. Oh, okay. So uh, what I want everyone to know is that carbon monoxide and smoke alarms do not last forever. And even if you have replaced the batteries in your alarms, whether they be smoke or carbon monoxide alarms, they have to be replaced every seven to ten years. The whole alarm. Oh, really? The whole not, shooting match, the right? The whole shooting match. Oh, wow. It needs to be replaced. Oh, okay. So, and they're not very expensive. No, no. They're, right. affor- they're affordable. And if they're not, contact your local fire department and uh, see if they can help you out. You're, you're welcome, Rob. <laughs> and so, um, but, but yeah, I want everyone to know that they need to be replaced. I also want everyone to know that one alarm is most likely not enough. Okay. So in the home, uh, the average home, bungalow or not, um, more than one is not enough. Okay. <laughs> now, Captain Horgan, uh, I have mine plugged in. Pretty almost uh, right across the aisle from where the furnace is. It was a wall, of course, surrounding the furnace. It's not that rustic a home, uh, but it's it's very close to the to the furnace. And when I was describing that to Sharon, she kind of gave me one of those sideways <laughs> looks, like maybe you're in the wrong spot, buddy. So, <laughs> Captain Horgan, where should that carbon monoxide monitor or warning alarm system be best placed on the main floor? Well, that's a good question. Um, the International Association of Fire Chiefs came out with a guideline a few years ago, and it was um, no closer than five feet to your source. So in the case of your furnace, they say no more than five feet, uh, or not, sorry, not less than five feet from your furnace. So I'm doing a little math, and I'm, I'm right on the cusp. I'm yeah. really close, so I'm probably too close. I have a device, but it may be ineffective because it's wrongly positioned. Well, here's, a, here's kind of a, a gray answer for that when you're dealing with any kind of a toxic material and hazardous materials. It depends, and it doesn't sound like a very definitive answer, but situations are so different. What are the air currents like in your house? How well is your house sealed up? Right. Uh, where is your, are your sleeping quarters in relation to your uh, detector? Now, these are all things that I've discussed with people who have come to me with questions during uh, my time as a, a fire inspector and in public education. Where should we place our carbon monoxide exactly. detectors? Yeah. And way back then, uh, dating myself a bit, but these were brand. this was brand new stuff to... To the public, carbon monoxide detectors were just coming out about 20-some years ago. Yes. So they were pretty new, and people didn't really know what to do with them. And, and to back up what uh, Chief Garris was saying, it's very, very few people have them nowadays. Yeah. 
the what we call the penetration rate, right, or um, how many people have them in their home is relatively low, which is exactly why we were excited to be here today to talk about carbon sure. monoxide, because there have been so many incidents in the British Columbia area. But here's what I would just love to summarize for the consumers in the area and understand why it's so important to have these alarms with this thing called carbon monoxide. It is a poisonous gas. It, you can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. As Lori testified, if she's still on the line, um, yeah, she's with us. It, can, it can overtake you before you even know it. People have passed out um, and were not able to dial 911. Right. And it works, and in, in Dr. Campagna, if you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, how it works is basically in a nutshell by robbing your body's ability to process oxygen. It does. Uh, it, it does about four different things, and that's one of them. You're absolutely right. It displaces oxygen, so you're now you're now not getting oxygen. Right. But it's also a poison in of itself, which can render you unconscious and able, unable, therefore, to call uh, the yeah. fire people who who can save your life. That's correct. Right, yeah. and it's so totally preventable. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely preventable by just installing alarms. And yes, I work for um, an alarm manufacturer by Akita. But what I will say is that it's totally pre- preventable despite what uh, alarm you buy. They're available in all shapes and sizes, battery-powered, hardwired, mm-hmm. plug-in. We have an option available for you and your lifestyle and your particular environment. And we will actually be at the Burnaby Home Depot tomorrow. Okay. If anybody has any questions, please stop by. I will be there, and I will be happy to help you with your carbon monoxide or any smoke alarm or fire extinguisher questions. Right. Uh, and to Chief Garris, a question to you, sir. You were talking earlier about the your preferred approach to this would be uh, in uh, the, the code be amended so that every new constructed uh, uh, residence in British Columbia would have to include both a carbon monoxide and smoke detector. Typically, the, the new ones, uh, they come together as a unit. So is one of those ideal for a for an apartment, or would you need more? Well, well, let me just readjust the comment. All new construction in British Columbia actually uh, is required to have uh, CO detection today. I'm, what I'm referring to is retrospectively. Okay. And I, so, so what I'm saying is when an individual uh, believes or, or is told or their alarm is beeping to say that it's reached its end of life, yeah. I, would like to, I would like to see the law changed in order much like we have with smoke alarms, to say that every home, regardless of age, must have a working smoke alarm. And in this particular case, it would be a combination smoke alarm, CO detection. Gotcha. I, I, th- I think that the uh, Building Standards Branch, along with the BC Safety Authority and the Fire Commissioner's Office, they got together. We could uh, probably craft a piece of legislation to help us along. And, and at a minimum, that would see combination smoke alarm CO detections on every store shelf uh, going forward and that would be a good start in my mind. Very interesting and I'm, I'm fresh out of time and to all our guests thank you for being with us. The final word if you would Lori from the Okanagan please tell us how important this, this the carbon monoxide t- t- detector turned out to be in your life. Remind us. If you, if you have one check the expiry date on it 
replace it. We replaced ours the very next day again. And I do want to say thank you to Kitta for not changing the, the plug-in for the hard wire because after 10 years, it was so easy to just change it over and put a fresh one in. Interesting. And, and so just make sure that you have the combination CO detector. Laurie McIntosh, thank you for joining us from Vernon thank this you. afternoon. Dr. Thank Bruce you. Campagna in Victoria, thank you, sir, for taking time out of a very busy Saturday to be with us. Uh, Surrey Fire Chief Len Garris, a pleasure to meet you even at this distance, sir. We'll uh, have to talk again. Very much appreciate your joining us today as well. Thank you. And uh, here in studio, Burnaby Fire Department Captain Rob Horrigan. A pleasure to meet you, Rob. It's uh, been a very interesting afternoon, and this is terribly, terribly important stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just consider against the cost of a detector the cost of uh, what's at stake. No kidding. As Laurie said, Sharon, my gosh, I could have died. Sharon Cooksey, thanks. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming by. And this is terribly important stuff. And we did hopefully uh, justice to uh, your subject today. Well, thank you for having us and letting us talk about this. All right. We're back after this. And once again, thanks to our panel for, well, uh, just a terrific hour of good information. Thank you for listening for that. It was uh, just a wonderful hour. Next week, we'll have a, an important visit with the BC Securities Commission who wants you to become an informed investor. And the world-class dentist from BC Perio will join us next week as well. Time right now for Dooley Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, looks at the seal hunt. Thanks, Sterling. A group made up of BC First Nations, along with commercial and sport fishers, wants to see a commercial seal hunt on the province's west coast. The Pacific Balance Pinniped Society argues that the pinniped's population, the marine mammal family that seals and sea lions belong to, has exploded on the coast and are putting other species, such as salmon and orcas, at risk. Here's PBPS Vice President Thomas Seward. There's historic levels and beyond of pinnipeds. There's California sea lions that aren't usually up here, now living up here and eating all of our fish. And we need to do something. The group argues that a controlled harvest would have environmental benefits while creating economic job opportunities for Indigenous people. The market is worldwide, uh, starting right here in hometown. We've had several restaurants uh, phone us looking for supply already, just in, on Granville Island. And seal meat is uh, a delicacy on a lot of the very high-end restaurants in eastern Canada. A GFO estimate shows about 105,000 harbor seals on B.C.'s coast. That's about 10 times the number recorded in the early 1970s. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. Uh, And then there's this story. The very weird naming saga continues down the street at B.C. Place. You may recall about seven years ago, the Christy Clark Liberal government of B.C. struck a $40 million deal with TELUS to rename the dome TELUS Place. And at the 11th hour, the government pulled out of the deal, saying it wasn't rich enough. And besides, we like B.C. Place better as a name anyway. Well, fast forward to 2019, and the current NDP government has given PAVCO that is the BC Pavilion Corp, the operators of BC Place, the green light to cut a naming deal for the right price. Seems BC Place runs an annual deficit of over six million bucks. And the thinking now is, let's bring in some new money to cut that down. Request weather for proposals expected to go out soon, and we'll keep you posted. That is our show for this week. Produced by Ben Dooley, Andrew Ferreira is at the controls. We appreciate your feedback. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, send them along to Sterling 
sterling at cknw.com or tweet them to us at Van Consumer. And you can subscribe to or download our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sterling Fox. We're back again next Saturday at 2 with another edition of Vancouver Consumer. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.